Welcome to Disputes Digest. It is the week of February 2nd, 2022, and I'm Chris Campbell. Don't forget to follow Tales of the Tribunal on LinkedIn to stay up to date with news from around the international dispute resolution field. If you haven't already, take a moment and share the show with a friend or colleague. And if you've got any feedback for the show, drop us a line at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. And you already know the drill. Don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps others find the show. Now, let's get into it. Listeners, it is hard to believe that it has been so long since we did one of these. We were about 46 episodes in when we went on a little uh, hiatus to have a think about how the show runs. It's hard to believe that it's already 2022. Anyway, speaking of the show, we were doing a couple of things while we were on our break. First, we were making a couple of changes to the show. When we first started Disputes Digest as an offshoot of Tales of the Tribunal, one of the things that we wanted to do was to create a platform where people could hear about goings on in their field. After thinking about how we can continue, we decided that we're going to keep bringing you news right here, but we're going to shift how the opportunities and events are brought through this platform. The TOT social media accounts will share some of the events that we're following or excited about on a weekly basis and will occasionally post jobs or calls for paper that, you know, we may cover occasionally here on the show, but really we want to push things to a more uh, visual and illustrative format in that context. We're hoping a more visual and shareable medium might really help the information get out there. Second, we are finally adding some new faces. We have a new research assistant and a new social media person that are going to allow us to bring even more content your way. We'll announce them on the show and we may even have them come say hi. And finally, third, we're considering adding a new weekly element to Tales of the Tribunal's brand. While we're hard at work on season four of the show, we will continue to bring you Disputes Digest. We also want listeners in the legal community to be able to see samples of what we're going to offer through one of our new services or product lines, something we like to call TOT+. What's that, you ask? Well, you'll have to wait just a bit longer to find out, but in short, it's another way that we hope to make legal content and especially international arbitration and disputes content more accessible to everyone. We'll make the announcement official on the website and on the podcast soon. Okay, on to the show. This week, we begin with the news. First up, and as the first story that we're covering in 2022, let's talk about an article titled, In a Hard Global Insurance Market, Will Insurers Cover Political Risk Insurance Claims? Even pre-pandemic, corporate policyholders already faced a tightening insurance market and the ascension of COVID-19 has only caused further complications for global markets. For context, this article describes political risk insurance, or PRI, as an essential component of doing business in emerging markets to help ensure that they are protected against a certain risk. These policies typically cover losses a foreign investor might suffer as a result of an inverse or adverse action or inaction by the host country's government. Coverage is normally triggered by a state agency or other government taking action that undermines a value of given asset. One primary concern is that around the world, those actions are becoming more common, more sweeping and serve to create a more uncertainty for investors, so-called creeping expropriation. There are a few defenses that can be raised by insurers. First, rescission and avoidance, which is a type of warranty or representation 
that the insured was not aware of facts or circumstances that could lead to a loss, neither was there an intentional omission from the insurer about any such potential political risk. Two, loss resulting from the insured's failure to comply with the pre-existing state law regulation. Of course, as with any contract, the specific language will carry the day. Practitioners must be thoughtful about contract construction. Essentially, it comes down to making sure that you follow the law. As the world emerges from the COVID-19 pandemic, prudent investors will be wise to check their insurance policies and we'll include a more detailed article in the show notes in case you wanted to dive deeper. Then let's head over to China, where the China International Economic and Trade Arbitration Commission, or CTAC, released its 2021 arbitration statistics and summary. In his address to the press and center staff Secretary General Huang Chengjie, highlighted the organization's accomplishments, which saw the total CTAC caseload rise to a new height of 4,071 cases, making a 12% increase, with the vast majority being domestic arbitrations. Across all of those cases, there was a 123 billion renminbi in dispute total, and cases involved some 93 countries and regions. Across all of those cases was 123 billion renminbi in dispute totals, and cases involved some 93 countries and regions traversed 36 Belt and Road countries and regions. The organization also reaffirmed its mission statement, which is to be a one-stop shop for international commercial arbitration in China. The center then went on to enumerate a number of events, such as China Arbitration Week, the CISG Cup, and other similar events that serve as marquee events in evangelizing for the center. Overall, the annual summary had a positive tone and trumpeted even more ambitious goals to come. From there, let's head to the Middle East as the Dubai International Financial Center, or DIFC, recently decided a matter where it considered an application to set aside an arbitral award on grounds of failure to observe arbitral procedure, incapacity, and fair treatment. The matter was Lecaise versus Lacrosse, and the Court of First Instance, as well as the Court of Appeals, ruled against the appellant, declining to set aside the award. The appellant's argument challenged the prior ruling of the tribunal that initially heard the matter and was based on several arguments. First, the appellants argued that first, that not every page of the award was signed by the tribunal as was allegedly required by the applicable arbitral rules, which for the record were not disclosed to the public. The court was not convinced by this argument, however, and found that this procedural inconsistency did not rise to a level that would warrant setting aside the award. The court was not convinced by this argument, however, and found that this procedural inconsistency did not rise to the level that would warrant setting aside the award, and that in any case, the appellant had waived its right to assert this argument by failing to demonstrate why setting aside an award would remedy this nonconformity. Second, incapacity. The appellant also argued that its former solicitors did not have the capacity to change the applicable law of the charter parties from UAE law to English law. The court was not persuaded on this point either and found that incapacity, as argued by the appellant, pertained to the inability to agree to conclude a binding agreement to arbitrate, not to agree to some other different agreement as apparently instructed by the appellant. Third and finally, appellant argued unfair treatment, asserting that it was denied due process and that its case had not been fairly reviewed. The court ruled that this was a proxy attempt to have this court scrutinize the merits of the decision that were already completed by the tribunal. The Court of Appeals, which subsequently reviewed this holding, 
with the court of first instance and ruled against the appellant and upheld the arbitral award as rendered by the tribunal. Then let's head over to the United States as the Fifth Federal Circuit rejects a challenge to a litigation funding agreement for lack of standing. This decision, released back in December, sends a clear message to those seeking to challenge a trustee's litigation funding agreement. There must be a clear and bright line principle when it comes to matters of standing. The five-page opinion from Judge Wiener Jr. ruled in the matter in Ray Dean that the appellant lacked standing to challenge a funding agreement approved by a Texas bankruptcy court. Indeed, the court found that standing to appeal a bankruptcy court order is of necessity quite limited. The court also said that such standing must be connected to an exact order being appealed as opposed to the proceedings more generally. The court noted that in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, the trustee, not the debtor or the debtor's principal, has the capacity to represent the estate and to sue and be sued. Debtor may retain standing if they show that the defeat of an order on appeal would affect their bankruptcy discharge. The court's ruling is seen as a positive one by some litigation funders, and if the precedent is to be dissuaded, litigants will have to take a different path. Then let's stay in the U.S. as we head to the U.S. Supreme Court, which has just agreed to review a matter related to California's Private Attorney General Act, or CONDA, which has previously avoided arbitration agreements in a case titled Viking River Cruises, Inc. v. Moriana, to determine whether the Federal Arbitration Act, FAA, requires enforcement of a bilateral arbitration agreement providing that an employee cannot raise representative claims. For additional context, CONDA is a private enforcement mechanism which deputizes aggrieved employees to bring lawsuits to recover civil penalties for California labor code violations on behalf of themselves, other employees, and the state of California. This allows for POC representative actions where hundreds or thousands of claims can be consolidated into one action without having to meet the usual class certification standards. Under PAGA, penalties are calculated on a per pay period basis for each employee, which means that a technical violation of California labor code can be evolved into a seven-figure exposure. For example, a $250 pay employee pay period violation could be penalized at $1,000 for each subsequent violation. The case before SCOTUS could change all of that. Namely, if California employers are successful, then they can use the arbitration provisions in their agreements with, with PAGA waivers to avoid applications of the act and would set a precedent for other states with similar pieces of legislation. A ruling is expected later in 2022. Then we've got a blockbuster piece of news also out of the U.S. Supreme Court as Justice Stephen Breyer announces his plans to retire. Breyer, 83, is expected to stay until the end of his current term and until a replacement is confirmed. He is perceived as one of the three liberal justices on the bench and was nominated by President Bill Clinton in 1994. Aside from this being a major point of interest for the U.S. judiciary and politics, it is also of interest because U.S. President Biden has promised to nominate an African-American woman if the seat were to be vacant during his term. This has resulted in immediate speculation in who might fill that seat with three names rising to the top as potential shortlist for Biden. First, Judge Kentonji Brown Jackson of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, who was also considered by President Obama in 2016. California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger is a former Deputy Solicitor General and Judge J. Michelle Childs of the U.S. District Court of the District of South Carolina. 
Judge Childs' consideration is notable both because she is currently nominated to serve on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit and also has the support of Representative Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, who played a pivotal role in securing then-candidate Biden's spot as the Democratic Party nominee ahead of the 2020 election. Biden has said that he would announce his decision by the end of February and aims to seek the new justice by the summer. We'll keep you posted once this decision has been made and if and when that justice is seated. Finally, just as we were sitting down to record for this week, we received the tragic news of the passing of Chesley Crist. At the age of 30 years old, Chesley, or Cece as she was called, was a former Miss USA, lawyer, fashionista, and also a teammate of mine at the University of South Carolina, and a great friend. She was a warm person who had dreams and ambitions about making the world a better place for women, for people of color, and for the disenfranchised around the world, both through law and international policy. She will be missed, and we pause for a moment of silence in her honor. That's it for the Speech Digest. We are glad to get back, and we look forward to seeing you next week for more news from around the world of international law and dispute resolution. Until next time, this has been Speech Digest by Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared today or in any episode of Disputes Digest is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any organization or party for their inclusion on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees or organizations included appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearance should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.